We have such an odd collection of stories to talk about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I don't think we've ever had a mix quite like this. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Laura, I'll start with you. An Ohio stolen car ring of pretty big proportions was indicted and unsealed this week and includes the Dodge Ram stolen from Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. These guys were brazen. These guys were bold and they raked in a whole bunch of high dollar cars. What's the story? Yeah, a bunch of high dollar cars that they didn't necessarily resell for a whole lot of money. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not clear on exactly what they were hoping to get out of this. They sold them for as little as like forty five hundred dollars, or abandoned them on the side of the road. But we're talking about eleven men charged with racketeering. Prosecutors say they broke into dozens of dealerships, stole eighty six cars worth more than $5 million. We're talking about 26 businesses, 32 incidents. They hit the same showroom three times. This is over five months. They would go into the showrooms, chat them up during the day, case it to see what they wanted to come back for at night. They used their real names when they talked to people at the dealership. So yeah, one of these flashy cars, and they were like Dodge Challengers, Durango Hellcats, Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawks, that have V8 Hemi engines, BW, BMWs, Mercedes Benzes. One of those was the Dodge Ram that belonged to Deshaun Watson. His car was being serviced in North Olmsted in January. So I don't think that that was a special, like, we're going to get a Browns truck, right? I think that just happened to be there. But yeah, pretty incredible ring of theft. What surprised me about this is they were all pretty young, early yeah, 20s. Yeah, around 20. And they were pretty sophisticated about the way they did this. I mean, they were doing some things to make the car sellable. Um, and you're right. They, you know, they took, they took a few to Detroit and sold them for $4,500. And these are super expensive cars. Those Dodge Challengers, every time I see one, I think, I bet that's stolen because they're, they're <laughs> targets of thieves. But they didn't profit. I mean, it, it looks like this was joyriding. They found the cars abandoned or shot up or they were used in other crimes. But this wasn't your prototypical car theft ring where they steal the car, they get it to a chop shop, or they retitle it and get it to another state. It seems like these guys were joyriding to the tune of more than $5 million. And they'll do serious prison time. When you steal that amount of stuff, you're going away. You will not get light, light treatment in the courts. Yeah. So what they would do is they would go to these dealerships during the day. They'd see where the security cameras and the key fobs were kept. Then they came back at night wearing hoods and gloves. They busted through windows. They crawled on the floor to avoid security cameras. At one time, they went to the Avis car rental at the Cleveland Hopkins airport, and they helped the gunkeeper at gun, or sorry, gatekeeper at gunpoint while they rifled through the keys, throw, stole a Jeep Grand Cherokee and a Ford Expedition. So, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of amazing. They could do this for five months because it does seem so brazen. But um, one of the guys was arrested February 18th. Parma police led, uh, led a chase in its stolen Dodge Durango Hellcat. And so he got caught then. So, yeah, all around 20 years old. They faced more than 90 counts. This is big time. Yeah, interesting story. And it took a lot of detective work to to track these guys down. And it was as far away as Carroll County. I mean, this took place in many counties. They were targeting dealers everywhere. You're listening to Today in Ohio.
The plan to tear down the historic former juvenile court building along Interstate 90 to make way for development is taking a big step forward. Layla, everybody knows this building, even if they don't think they do, because when you're driving east on 90, right at 22nd Street, it looms in front of you, and it's got that kind of classic architecture. What's going on? Well, Steve Litt tells us that the county has agreed to tear down the building. For years, they had tried to figure out how to use it ever since the new Juvenile Justice Center opened in 2011. So now it's going to be raised to make way for a new bridge at East 22nd Street. And the bridge is going to span the highway trench that since the 50s has severed downtown from the majority black central neighborhood to the east and south. So the one that's there right now, the bridge that's there now is very narrow. It doesn't work for pedestrians. And the new proposal calls for a bridge nearly 120 feet wide with four 11-foot wide travel lanes and a 10-foot center turn lane. The east side of the bridge is going to have 42-and-a-half-foot wide strip with a separated bike path and a 23-and-a-half-foot wide area for pedestrians and landscaping. The west side of the bridge would have a 22-foot wide area for bikes and pedestrians. And then there will be these opaque walls on either side of the bridge uh, that would be covered with public art or some LED light display, something aesthetically pleasing like that. Once the the building is demoed, which they expect to happen by next spring, the county will maintain ownership of the land that they don't need for the bridge project. And after it's complete, the county will conduct a site analysis and work with the city of Cleveland to determine what's the best use for residents in the neighborhood uh, moving forward. I, I laughed when I read the line about that the current bridge is narrow. Uh, I used to cover juvenile court. I used to have to cross the street there. And I don't think anybody that did that would describe that as narrow when <laughs> cars are bearing down on you. Uh, the The building itself, the the, the historic building, uh, it really cannot be repurposed. It's been bastardized over the year. There's one original courtroom there that was actually, um, fil- a movie was filmed there, The Kid from Cleveland, about the 1950s Indians. Um, but it's a building that has history. Bob Hope went through there when he when he went through juvenile court when he was a delinquent. But there really is no fixing it. The one thing in the story that I'm throwing the flag on is David Rasm, who I guess is the head of speaking for Chris Ronane, says that Chris Ronane has unilateral power to demolish the building. That is total BS. Steve Litt even called back to say, you really maintain that? And he goes, oh, yeah, we have absolute power. That's not the way government works, man. They can't do it. They'd have to award some kind of contract to either cede the property to somebody to demolish it or to demolish it. And the idea that he's making this unilateral decision is just hooey. The county council will have to decide what to do with this county asset. That's the way government works. We're going to have to do a story today, Layla, to say David Razum doesn't understand how county government works. At the very least, council needs to approve the funds for the demo, and they can easily say no to that, which... Well, the the story said that, but but it, it it created the idea that if they don't need to get the money through the county, if there's another source, the council doesn't have a say. There's no way Chris right. Ronane can say, tear. I'd be like Frank Jackson or, or Justin Bibb saying, I'm going to tear down City Hall and City Council can't <laughs> stop me. You know, that's not the way it works. It's a county asset. And if you're going to dispose of a county asset, it has to go through. It's why we have checks and balances. I don't get this guy, David Razum, man. He just doesn't seem to understand how things work. You're listening to Today in Ohio.
Why did the leader of Cleveland's AFL-CIO get shown the door, and what is his response to the controversy? Lisa, this one seems fishy. It does. Uh, North Shore AFL-CIO leader Dan O'Malley, who represents 85,000 members in the Cleveland area, was removed from office, according to a statement by board chair Sherry Obrensky at their April 12th board meeting. Apparently, there were complaints involving O'Malley's use of union credit and reimbursement practices. He was accused of doing that six times, and they found him in violation for four of those six times, but we don't know any details. They didn't answer any other questions. And when they were asked whether they were going to forward this to law enforcement, they said they're following internal processes right now. So uh, O'Malley uh, is has been the head of the AFL-CIO here since uh, January of 2021. And his, they didn't you know, rein in there. His attorney, Stephen Deaver, says that his client was treated unfairly. There was a lack of due process in his firing, and they were motivated by personal agendas and differences on the union's vision to expand. And some board members apparently questioned O'Malley's attendance at LGBTQ venues and events and inappropriate expenses attached to that. But Deaver says there were only $1,200 over two years of undocumented expenses, and he always got his expenses approved monthly. So what is up? Well, what's wrong with this is if you're going to say we fired him because of questionable credit card expenditures, you basically are implying there's some crime there, that there's theft. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do that, if you're going to disparage this guy's reputation like that, you need to show the goods. You need to do what Metro Health did when they got rid of Akron Boutros. Show the public what you're talking about, because otherwise there are questions about is there any there there. Dan O'Malley was a Lakewood City Councilman when he took this job. And Mm -hmm. he's fairly well regarded. If this really comes down to some of the unions don't like him supporting LGBTQ issues, they got a serious problem in the AFL-CIO. And this just doesn't doesn't sit right. I mean, it's it seems very, very stinky because they would have had to vote. The AFL-CIO is the umbrella, right, for all the labor organizations. Correct. So each of the the leaders that's on the board voted to oust him. They ought to come clean. This represents like 85,000 people. It's more than most mayors. Yeah. And, you know, they um, did this April 12th and it's only now coming to light. So, you know, yeah, very interesting. And the fact that they're being very circumspect about, you know, what's and they're not answering any other questions. I know we'll be digging into this to see what's at the bottom of all this. Well, here's what I wonder. Um, remember when Chris Ronane was running for county executive, the Democratic establishment didn't want him. They were lining up behind Brad Sellers. They were trying to get votes. And then we did some stories about Brad Sellers' questionable tax breaks, and Brad Sellers dropped out, and Chris was the default guy. But if O'Malley wasn't lining up with them, I wonder if this is about politics. I wonder if this is you didn't help us to get our guy in because Chris was not their guy. And this is retribution for that. The unions like to flex their power in politics, and they're very much a part of the Democratic machine that is holding back this county.
Well, and I wonder what the differences on the vision to expand the union are. Maybe he was wanting to be more inclusive of LGBTQ and the rest of them said no, but we don't know. We're just speculating at this point until they provide us more details. Right. We're forced to speculate because they're not being transparent. They ought to take a page from Metro Health. Once Metro Health laid out their case, everyone, oh, I see. You know, provide your case or people are going to be skeptical of what you're doing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. State Senator Jerry Serino's Orwellian bill to silence people on college campuses under the guise of free speech is one step closer to becoming law. Laura, what is the status of this kooky bill? It's just so strange that this is moving. Yeah, the Senate passed it yesterday, pretty much on party lines, and the House has got a similar version. It'll also take a look at the Senate version. But this is so far-reaching and so disturbing for anyone who cares about education and the future of young people. It has so many tentacles of just deciding what higher education in Ohio should be. It's just very authoritarian. It will force colleges to add to their mission statements that they don't favor or disfavor any political, social, or religious beliefs. They want to outlaw the ability of faculty and staff to strike. They want to ban mandated diversity training, require annual faculty performance evaluations and post-tenure reviews with a whole lot of input from students. And they're just dictating what is going to be taught, including a three-credit course, which is a full semester semester, three-day-a-week course on basic tenets of government, like reading the Declaration of Independence. And Jerry Serino is the Northeast Ohio senator who came up with this. He said it's an opportunity for the legislator to change the direction of higher education. He said too many kids, too many professors teach students what to think, not how to think. And he, this is the direct quote, If we do not act now, I feel we will continue down the path of servitude to a woke agenda from which there will be no return. Yeah, I mean, he is, this is Orwell. It's say the opposite of what you're doing and then say, how can anybody disagree with that? This is about free speech. This is about protecting people when it's the total opposite. It's weird that Serino, who had a long career in business, got into the legislature to dive into the culture wars. I mean, he is 100% the culture war warrior and, and he's just full of it and, and, and getting very critical of anybody who dares to criticize what he's doing. It's the emperor's new clothes here. What are you talking about? I'm all for free speech. I'm trying to yes. protect the students. I feel like this is the same kind of double speak we're seeing with the 60% amendment where they say, you know, we don't want outside influences, but it's outside influences that are paying for that message. So they're saying they don't want to indoctrinate college kids, but that's what they're doing with this conservative point of view. It's like they're afraid that college kids are going to learn how to think and be liberal, and they don't want any Ohioans to get any liberal ideas. It's embarrassing that he's from Northeast Ohio. This is the kind of stuff you expect from the southern part of the state. Um, and it, you know, if it gets passed, I've heard from people on campuses, they think students will stop coming to Ohio universities, that they're paying attention to this kind of thing. And then people who you might want to teach at the universities are going to say, well, Ohio's turning into an authoritarian state. We're not going there. Let's go someplace where academia matters. And we have great colleges in this state. And this does just apply to the state colleges and universities. So it's, you know, it's not going to be Kenyon or Denison or Case. Well, well, I've talked to some people. Well, they took that out because there were so many. Yeah, but if you get. That was originally in there. If you get state money, there's a fear that they will somehow try to apply this. Right. And they, they did address that because so many schools but private schools have a religious background. And so they said they couldn't do that. So we'll see what 
shakes out with that. But we have great schools like Ohio State University and Miami University, and they get a lot of -of out-of-state students. And, you know, Mike DeWine is always saying, we want people to move to Ohio. How are you going to get college students to come to Ohio if, like, it feels like you've got Liberty University here? Like, it's just so depressing to be in the state and feel like you, you it's just being dragged backwards by the hair. Yeah, and I'm sure Mike DeWine will sign this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Just a few years after taxpayers kicked in many tens of millions of dollars, hundreds really, to upgrade the place, the Cavs have come back for even more public money for where they play. How much do they want and what for, Layla? The team says that it needs $9.8 million to replace the elevators and escalators in that facility, which, which they say are 29 years old old and at the end of their lifespan, and they want $18.4 million to buy new broadcasting equipment for the control room that they say is currently running on spare parts from eBay. So under the terms of their lease agreement with Gateway Economic Development Corporation, Gateway is on the hook for the major capital repairs to the facility over $500,000. But the problem is Gateway doesn't have the money. Each of Cleveland's three professional sports facilities gets about $92 million in proceeds from the county syntax on alcohol and cigarettes to make the capital repairs they need through 2034. The Cavs, though, only have $10 million left. They can't get the rest of what they say they need without going back to taxpayers on this. So what we're grappling with here is that their arena was just overhauled a few years ago, as you said. Those renovations were completed in 2019, and the public footed a big portion of that with the Cavs paying for overruns and extras that they added along the way. So why weren't these capital improvements factored into the plan back exactly. then? If, if it, they knew it, the elevators were reaching the end of their lifespan, why didn't they include it in the renovation? And you know what? This is what I think, because they wanted the other bells and whistles and all the flash of their new digs first, because if the necessities like elevators were covered in that project and it tapped out their budget, they couldn't later ask for the glamorous upgrades because Gateway isn't responsible for those. The Cavs knew they could use that renovation to get this amazing facility they wanted and then later come back to Gateway for the capital upgrade that Gateway is required to make. And then yeah. the Guardians are doing the same thing. You know, right now, the the expense of their cushy seats that they want is being absorbed by the $100 million capital improvements budget that's built into their $435 million lease agreement. But they're already compiling another list of what they're calling capital improvements that they believe Gateway is responsible for. Yeah, this, this stinks to the high heavens. And, and let's face it, the Cavs sold out most of their games this year. They raked in money, and now they're turning around to a county and city that don't have any money, because and they have huge needs that we in the jail and the Justice Center and some other projects, and saying we need more it's inexcusable that they did not incorporate the escalators into the upgrade to that arena. I, 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 I think it's diabolical. I think it's exactly what you said. They knew there were three years left of its life and they knew they could turn around and say, well, you know, it's your arena. You gotta, you gotta keep it up. And I, I just wonder at some point, you know, cause the Haslam's are out there trying to shake loose hundreds and hundreds of millions to, to do stuff to the football stadium. At some point to the people of this, region say let's get rid of one of our teams that's it's just Mm -hmm. not we don't have the money we cannot afford 
to keep doing this because we're not providing the basic services like a safe and secure jail, an efficient jail, like a courthouse that doesn't have leaks everywhere. Because these these guys who are raking in the money in the public facilities keep coming back and saying they want Taj Mahal treatment. This is this is a horrible development. I cannot believe the Cavs have the audacity to do it. I agree. And didn't you agree love more. that quote from Ken Silliman that was basically like, well, you're just going to have to find it. And it was like so entitled. Yeah, he's over it. <laughs> you can tell he's just over it. <laughs> Well, I think he's stating matter of factly. Look, I don't have the money and, you know, we're on the hook. So where's the money going to come from? I don't right. I don't think he's saying, you know, let's go get the money. I think he's just laying out. These are the facts, guys. We don't have the money. The contract is such that this, you know, nobody said, why didn't you incorporate this into the gigantic project? You know, that project almost got killed. There was a referendum that mm-hmm. went to Kevin Kelly and it was pulled at the last minute, but it almost got killed. That project almost didn't happen. The taxpayers in their largesse greatly upgraded that place. The cabs are hugely benefiting from it with sold out stuff. And now they're hitting up a really a, a almost bankrupt city and county saying we need more. I, I, that story was the shocker of the day. Uh, shame on the Cavs for what they're doing. I, I wish this. that cities would band together and decide collectively that they're not going to be held hostage uh-huh. by sports teams anymore in this way. And that, the- that we'd see some sort of cultural change in the way we view these facilities. Rather than being an arms race for what they can offer. Exactly. Or, mm-hmm. you know, does Cleveland need to have a reckoning that we're not one of the big cities anymore? We can't afford to have three professional sports teams. Well, two professional sports teams and the Browns. You're listening <laughs> to Today in Ohio. What is the significance of Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur's push to designate U.S. Route 20 for veterans? Lisa. Yeah, this is, and I didn't know this, but U.S. 20 is the nation's longest road. It's 3,365 miles from Boston to Newport, Oregon, 260 miles here in Ohio, and I believe it's Euclid Avenue here in Northeast Ohio, which is also 20. So anyway, uh, Marcy Kaptur, the uh, Democrat from Toledo, is part of a bipartisan push in Congress to name U.S. Route 20 the National Medal of Honor Highway. Um 331 Ohioans have received the National Medal of Honor, some of them from areas right along US-20. This is supported by several veterans organizations, and it began with a push from Dick Tobiason, who's a Vietnam veteran and head of the Bend Heroes Foundation in Oregon, and he got the Oregon legislature to designate their section, the Oregon Medal of Honor Highway, and then all of the other states follow suit. But Tobiason, Tobias now says, now that every state's done it, it's time for the federal government to do the same and name it the National Medal of Honor Freeway. He said it's a permanent tribute and only fitting to honor the bravest of the brave on the longest highway in our nation, which I didn't know is actually called Big Daddy. All right, so it'll be called Big Daddy. It'll be called 20. And in Cleveland, it'll be called Euclid Avenue. And now it'll also be called the veteran's name. Correct. <laughs> That's a lot of names for a roadway. Um, well, actually, it's also the health line, right? 
Oh, you're right. Cool. Yeah, the Euclid Alpha. Yeah, we could just keep so, lapping, lapping on more names. Is any part of it named for a person? You know, Cleveland names uh, roads for all sorts of people. I wonder if there. Uh, how many names can you attach to one to one road? Not that I. But this would be a federal designation, to be fair. So it would be like U.S. Twenty National Medal of Honor Highway. I I, I like the idea, but he's right. Tobiasen is right. All the states have done it. Just make it national. Yeah, it, it does make sense if you've done it everywhere. Although. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a sign that calls it that in in our area. Maybe a federal mm-hmm. designation would include some funding to put up the signs. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the ever more popular pickleball coming to tennis in the land? And if so, Laura, will you try to be a ball girl for pickleball as well as tennis? No, because the pickleball is just for fun for people to try and pick up and play. It's not the professional women's tennis association on the road to the U.S. Open, which is what makes it so exciting to go to tennis in the land. So um, it is a great event. They've had it for two years in the flats uh, at Nautica, where they've had it actually where the concerts are, which has been very cool. And you're under the tent, which is nice. And then Every once in a while, a freighter will go by, and it's like they they must be radioing because they wait till a stop and play, and then they'll give that giant horn, and everybody cheers. But this year, they're going to have a brand new, I think, temporary stadium where everything will be all together because right now, you've had the main court, the championship court under the tent, and then the other courts out in the parking lot, which is a little bit of a walk, and it's just not connected, and you don't really have the same you know, fervor building. So this new stadium and courts will work everything together. They'll have a fan section and it's just growing every year, which is really nice to see. Yeah. We had an interesting conversation about pickleballs. We were talking about this yesterday because <laughs> somebody at the Washington Post wrote a piece ripping pickleball saying, you know, it's not really a sport if you don't move more than 18 inches and science has shown you actually get more exercise by walking than playing pickleball. And he complained about the thwack, thwack, thwack sound that is driving people who live near pickleball courts out of their heads. So this is just, they're going to have some courts where if you go, you can play pickleball. Yeah, exactly. And they'll have concessions and merchandise, live music, interviews with the athletes all together to provide some good energy all day. And this fan area is actually going to be free. So you could go and not buy a ticket and tickets are going to be cheaper this year. The lowest price ticket last year was $34. This year it's 25. Although I believe the very earliest rounds were free. And if you volunteer like me, you not only get in free, you get a free t-shirt. So, you know. Yeah, we don't have enough of those. (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to today in ohio all right layla did senator sherrod brown actually get some action from norfolk southern with his demand that they spruce up the eyesores that we highlighted with photos and stories yeah he his his uh the response he got was pretty weak this came from the ceo alan shaw and the backstory here, as you said, we we wrote a couple stories highlighting the crumbling bridges and other rail infrastructure issues that readers and city council members found especially egregious. And Sherrod Brown had reached out to Norfolk Southern, demanding that they take action to fix these problems. In at least one case, the Lake Avenue Bridge, chunks of concrete were falling from the bridge onto the roadway below, and, and planks of plywood had been installed there to try to prevent that. But In Norfolk Southern's response to Brown, they try to reassure that they inspected that bridge a year ago, and it's fine. (laughs) They said that they'll take another look, and they have already sent staff with power washers and a vacuum truck 
to remove mud and water and debris from under the bridge, and they'll replace the plywood if it needs it. So don't worry about that. But Shaw didn't answer, he didn't address any of the other problems that our readers identified. He only talked about that one bridge, and Sherrod Brown is not satisfied. He said he's not given up on this. He is going to keep pressing them until they, they do the work that's necessary here. Well, what we talked about from the start was they leave their facilities in such utter disrepair and, and unmaintained. They're all rusting and they're all weedy that, yeah. that it sends a message to the neighborhood that we don't care about you. We don't care that you have to look at our horribly maintained properties because we don't have to fix them. And that's not what a good corporate resident does. You take care of your, your facilities. You show respect to the neighborhood. I salute Jared for going at him. He shouldn't let it go. This is shameful. Look, drive under any railroad bridge. How many of them have had a fresh coat of paint in the last 10, mm. 15 years? Well, probably pretty recently if you're talking about um, the vandals and it's <laughs> a fresh yeah, coat of freshest, paint accounts. The freshest paint is the graffiti. <laughs> graffiti. Yeah, it's, um, Norfolk Southern just is not stepping up here and I hope Jared Brown keeps it going. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did Lizzo give some love and some business to La Plaza in Lakewood last week? Lisa, we talked about this after the podcast and then we had a story about it. Yeah, yeah. I happened to see the video a couple days ago in the local news. Lizzo was here in Cleveland last week for a concert. And while she was here, she stopped at La Plaza Taqueria and she ordered some cactus vegan tacos, although in Texas we call cactus cactus nopalitos and she did a tiktok video sampling her meal there was also black beans mexican rice and a jarritos tamarind soda and as she was eating it you know she her eyes kind of widened when she tasted it she's like oh it's so well seasoned and then she added a little salsa and she said b it is so good and she's been vegan since 2020 and she's been documenting her journey on social media the video went viral it's been viewed more than 870,000 times Plaza marketing manager Claudia Buse says the response has been insane. They've gotten more than 300 new social media followers, tons of good reviews on Google, and then lots of new company customers at their store, which is at 13609 Lakewood Heights Boulevard in Cleveland. So go and check it out. Yeah, good news story for, for that. It's a great place. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for our Thursday episode. We'll be back on Friday to wrap up the week. Thanks, Lisa, Leila, and Laura, and thank you for listening to our podcast. 